He's like, do you actually want to help people and actually write a good book? And I said, yes. And he said, well, you're in for the hardest experience of your life. And I was sort of laughing at him like, ah, it can't be harder than like trying to track down Bill Gates. No, it is much harder. (laughs) It's much narrative writing is much harder. I will take chasing down Warren Buffett any day as hard as that was. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today I talk with Alex Benayan, whose best-selling book, The Third Door, recounts his attempt as a college student to create a kind of dream university by interviewing famous people about how they first became successful. The book does end up exploring wisdom and insights from people like Bill Gates and Steven Spielberg and Maya Angelou and Lady Gaga. But at its heart, it's about what Alex learns from his attempts to approach and interact with these people. Alex goes into more detail about the book and the interview itself, and he's a great storyteller, but we also talk about what it's like to write a book, how to keep people turning the pages of your story, and why what you leave out is as important as what you put in. We talk about how mentors can help in such an undertaking, even when those mentors make you rewrite a chapter 132 times. We talk about the importance of storytelling, not just in writing a book, but in making yourself memorable when you meet people for the first time. This ends up being a longer than average podcast conversation, but this allows me to ask Alex about everything that interested me about his book and the process that went into writing it. Part of this interest comes from my work as a writing teacher, since I was interested to know exactly how he and his mentor put this book together, and I'm always curious to break this kind of thing down for the Big Idea Book Bootcamp writing classes I teach each year. More information on these classes can be found at pariswritingworkshops.com or at the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. A reminder, if you've been enjoying this podcast, to please subscribe and leave a friendly review at your favorite podcasting service. And please check out my sponsor, Airtrex, which specializes in multi-stop itineraries for vagabonding-style journeys. Plug in the destinations of your dream trip at Airtrex.com to see exactly how they can save you money. And if you do have a big trip coming up, or if you're looking for holiday gift ideas, check out Tortuga, my other sponsor, which designs backpacks and backpack accessories for vagabonding journeys. You can see a variety of their backpack models at rolfpotscom Tortuga. And if you find a pack you like, you can get 10% off your order by using the promo code DEVIATE. But for now, please enjoy my conversation with Alex Benayan. We start by talking about approaching mentors and how a certain not-yet-famous Big Idea book writer approached me for advice back in 2006. Let's listen in. It was really interesting to read your book because it reminded me of the first time that somebody approached me uh, asking me for mentorship, which was sort of a surprise. It was 2006. My book had only been out for a few years. And even though people wrote me for travel advice, they never really asked me for, for mentorship directly. And, uh, and this guy, uh, he approached me very much not in the, in the succinct uh, Tim Ferriss manner you mentioned. It was like an eight-paragraph <laughs> email. Um, he wanted to have a phone call. He actually uh, used the phrase, thank you in advance. But it was, it was very charming, and, I, and he was very complimentary of my writing. So I got on the phone with him. I sent him to my agent, who turned him down. Um, but eventually, he became a best-selling author. That was actually Tim Ferriss in, in 2006. <laughs> and, and so it was so funny that your, your book is, is often about you know, making mistakes and working through things. And it's also about how Tim Ferriss has this awesome... I, I love this story so much. I want you to say it a second time so I can hear it again because it's so great. <laughs> there's, a, there's a very... Um, 
I, it's actually, it's very strange, the feeling of, uh, it felt so good to hear that. Because hmm. I was on the other side of the table so long with Tim to hear, um, it, it, makes, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, and it's a very beautiful story. Well, he, obviously, Tim is a super smart guy, but he refined his approach and he did a lot of the same things that you did. I mean, he approached a lot of strangers, including me. And I'm not, I'm just, I wrote a book that he liked. I wasn't like Bill Gates. I'm not a world famous guy, but it was interesting that, uh, and obviously there was, I could, even though it was an eight paragraph email instead of a three paragraph email, like he later advised, (laughs) I could just sort of see his passion and his enthusiasm in it. But it's interesting that, Obviously, when Tim Ferriss sent me an email, he was still working through this process that he later advised you about. It make this is I I have a I almost feel guilty how much this story makes me happy. <laughs> it's fantastic. And, and so it was interesting all these years later to be reading your book, and and Tim Ferriss comes up a lot as a um, as a as sort of a, an example, you know, as sort of yeah. the, the person who who became successful in the world and has all this wisdom to share. Um, yet I, I met Tim when he was a guy who I sent to my agent. My agent said, thanks, no thanks, which is really my agent's, you know, it, that was my agent's mistake because clearly Tim had a, an entire franchise at stake. And so I think, you know, that's sort of my Tim, that's one of my Tim Ferriss stories. And I don't think I've ever told that that story exactly, you know, because I don't think I'd ever seen anyone outline his approach in the same way that you had. And I thought, hmm, I'm going to count how many paragraphs had uh, Tim had in his first wow, email to me. I love that. And was that a cold email that he sent to you? It was a cold email. Yeah. Um, That's fantastic. And what did you sense in that email? You know, it was clearly, you know, it's eight paragraphs. You know, you could sense it was too long. But what made you actually want to get on the phone with him? Well, it, it, the subject heading said something along the lines of letter email from Tim Ferriss, Princeton lecturer. And so I thought, hmm, okay. <laughs> but, but it could have said, you know, um, email from Tim Ferriss, Scranton Community College lecturer, right. because it was clear that he had read my book and that he had taken its advice to heart and that he was very sincere. And so I think... Eight paragraphs or three paragraphs, you know, maybe 25 paragraphs is too much. But sincerity, I think, counts for a lot. And just showing that, look, I'm not just a guy who wants advice. Because interestingly enough, after all these years, I sometimes get people who send me emails, but they sort of want a stepping stone me to get to Tim Ferriss. Like they, they, maybe they've read Mm. my book, but they see me as a person who knows Tim Ferriss. And I'm not complaining about them. I can sort of understand the process. But you can tell... You can yeah. really sense sincerity, and, and I could sense sincerity in Tim's email to me all these years ago. That's really beautiful. And how did you see, because it's, you know, it's a fascinating vantage point that you had, you know, how did you see him evolve in those early years you know, with refining his process? Because clearly what he did when he was reaching out to you, when I interviewed him for The Third Door, he very much uh, advised to do the opposite, which I actually think was very good advice. Well, I think... He probably learned the same lessons as you did. And and one thing, not to give too much away about your book, um, is that in a way your book becomes about the process rather than like the uh, encyclopedia of wisdom, you know, yeah. that the process is what teaches you. And I suspect the same thing happened to me because I, I was a travel writer guy, again, who's I, I wasn't Bill Gates. And so I'm I'm not getting 20 emails a day. I'm getting maybe three emails a week. And so I thought, hmm, this guy seems sincere. But I'm sure that Tim didn't always get a reply 
within a day or two like he got from me. And so I'm sure he worked through that. You know, he was still teaching his class. He described the four-hour work week in terms of the class he was teaching and how he wanted to turn it into a, a mm. book. And, you know, he blogged for me for a while. Um, he, he contributed wow. to my blog. And, and so it's really weird. After all these years, it se seems so strange to see his name in your book as he was a guy who was sort of – he was testing out his writing process not for writing for a super famous blogger type person, but just writing for me, a guy that uh, whose whose book he liked. And so I think that between 2006, when I got that email for from him, and 2007 when his book came out, he just he used what ends up being your wisdom, which is the process of mm. learning every time you send an email and don't get a reply, or every time you send an email and do get a reply. You know, he, he sent me some some John McPhee books. That, you know, he really appreciated, even though my agent turned him down, um, he sent me some books wow. and, and, and just followed up um, on that human level, which is, again, another thing that comes through your book. And and so um, so that's sort of my Tim Ferriss story. And, I love that. And, and storytelling, one thing that I enjoy about your book, and then also like from the interviews I've seen with you is that there's something, your family comes from Iran, right? But there's That's something right. very Southern in the way you answer questions because mm. it wasn't until I moved to New Orleans and made friends in New Orleans that I realized that in the North, when you ask a question, people will give you an answer. But in New Orleans, you ask a question and somebody will tell you a story, right? Mm. And, and so oftentimes stories count for more than answers, that oftentimes data has a different valence than the stories that contain data, but also can contain things like inspiration. So my first question for you, keeping in mind you can answer this as long or short as you want, is um, what's your book about? Because I have some questions about how mm. to write your book, but I think just so my audience understands what's at stake here, um, I, I, and I know before you wrote your book, you sort of wanted to create this dream university of advice from people you really admired. Um, mm -hmm. But since I know you're going to answer not with data, but with a story. <laughs> well, I guess I have no choice now. <laughs> right. How did, how did your book come about? How did you how did you get the idea? How did you live through the process and how did you end up writing it? When I was 18 years old. So this all started about nine years ago. I was 18 years old, a freshman in college, and I was spending every day lying on my bed, staring up at the ceiling. And I was going through the, you know, what do I want to do with my life crisis? But for me, it was a pretty unique situation, not in the sense of, you know, I was trying to find myself. I was actually going through this entire identity crisis. And the reason that was the case is because I'm the, you know, like you mentioned, I'm the son of Iranian Jewish immigrants, which pretty much means I came out of the womb. My mom cradled me in her arms, and then she stamped MD on my behind and just sent me on my way. And that's sort of the way it goes, you know, in immigrant families. You know, it's you know, doctor, lawyer, engineer, and you have to understand. I wore like medical scrubs to school for Halloween in third grade because I thought that was cool. You know, that was my childhood growing up. Yeah. And when I got, you know, even in high school, you know, I checked all the boxes, you know, took all the biology classes, you know, studied for the SATs. I even went to pre-med summer camp. So by the time I got to college, I'm the pre-med of pre-meds. But very quickly, I found myself lying on my dorm room bed, looking at this towering stack of biology books, 
feeling like they were, you know, Dementor sucking the life out of me. And at first I assumed, you know, I was just being lazy. But very quickly I began to wonder. And really, this was the first time I ever thought, I even asked myself this question in my own head, which was, maybe I'm not on my path. Maybe I'm on a path somebody else placed me on and I'm just rolling down. And this is worth considering. Sorry to interrupt your story. Of just course, because, yeah. you know, my, my sister teaches at college and my dad taught some, at some college for a while. But there's a sense at which college is sort of the prescribed answer to what should I do with my life, you know? Um, and so people say, well, go to college, you know, you'll, you'll figure it out. But actually underneath all of that, and I think my, my sister will acknowledge this, that college gives you options. It has a little template, but life is so much bigger than what you get in a place like college. And it sounds like maybe that whole Scrubs as a Halloween costume scenario didn't just feel right. And, and sometimes that feeling is worth acknowledging. Well, what's funny about it is when you're young, actually, I was going to say when you're a kid, but I, see, I know a lot of adults who still do this. When you're a kid especially, at least I can speak from my personal experience, you know, when I wear the scrubs to school for Halloween, you know, my grandma and grandpa are, you know, proud of me. My mom is, you know, so happy. And, you know, it's like carrot and stick. You know, you're getting applause and love and affirmation from the people who you care about the most. And so you keep doing it. And you, you don't wonder, you know, there's no thoughts of, you know, destiny and who am I when you're eight years old. All you know is that all the people who take care of you are really happy when you do this one thing. So you double yeah. down. And I grew up, again, like with a, you know, immigrant refugee family. It's very insular. So, and, you know, for better or for worse, some, some things were good about it and some things in hindsight weren't so healthy about it, but, you know, very, very tight-knit, very codependent, you know, my cousins were, you know, my only friends really growing up and it wasn't until, and I was, I know this sounds crazy, but I was the first person in my entire family history, you know, out of all my cousins to move into the dorms for college. Huh. All my other older cousins went to, I lived in Los Angeles, they all went to, you know, UCLA, which was, you know, driving distance from our home, and they lived at home with the family. The reason I bring this up, which I think you'll appreciate, is it wasn't until I had even the sliver, the sliver of space to myself, you know, moving into the dorms, literally within a month, questions began to creep into my head that never came into my head when I was living under my parents' roof. Hmm. Because frankly, there wasn't space, and even, I think subconsciously, it wasn't even safe for me to even have those questions when I was living with my parents. And I think traveling, you know, especially long-term traveling, is a great example of giving yourself the space for your, whether your soul or your subconscious, to ask yourself the questions that it's been waiting for. Yeah, I should phrase it that way more often. Thank you. Yeah. It it, do, it really does give you space, um, not just, I mean, if you use the metaphor of family, like your country in a way is your family. And so you mm -hmm. forget how mm -hmm. insular it can be when you're just in your own culture and then you, you move overseas, you travel overseas in a long way. And suddenly you're reevaluating everything 
and it can be it can be shocking, but it also be good. So thank you. I'm going to start using that. Right, and I think what's really beautiful about it is you know I've done a lot of international travel. I realize, especially just this year, traveling doesn't make my problems go away, but it does give me a different perspective on them. Hmm. Yeah. And that should not be underestimated. And I think the same happened when I went to the dorm. So, you know, I'm sitting there, I'm wondering what I want to do with my life. And not only did I not know at that time what I wanted to do, I had no idea how the people who I looked up to, how they did it. You know, how did Bill Gates sell his first piece of software out of his dorm room when nobody knew his name? Or, you know, how did Spielberg become the youngest director in Hollywood history without a single hit under his belt? No, this is what they don't teach you in school. So... I just assumed that there had to be a book with the answer. So, you know, I'm going to the library and I'm ripping through, you know, business books and self-help books, assuming there had to be a book with the answer. And eventually, I was left empty-handed. And what I was obsessed with was not a particular age in life, but more a particular stage. When you have a, you know, very ambitious dream and no one's taking you seriously, no one's taking your calls, how do you find a way to break through? And that's when my naive 18-year-old thinking kicked in. And I thought, well, no one's going to write the book I'm dreaming of reading. You know, why not write it myself? You know, I thought it would be very simple. I thought I would just, you know, call up Bill Gates, interview him, interview everybody else, and I'll be done in a few months. That, I assumed, would be the easy part. The hard part, I figured, was getting the money to fund this journey. I was buried in student loan debt. I was all out of bar mitzvah cash, so there had to be a way to make some quick money. So two nights before final exams, I'm in the library, you know, doing what everyone does in the library right before finals. I'm on Facebook. Right. And, <laughs> and I'm on Facebook. You know, that's like peak social media time, you know, like two nights before finals. My, my college uh, was before Facebook, so I'll have to take your word for it, but I don't <laughs> doubt it at all. So... And I'm sitting in the library, I'm on Facebook, and I see someone offering free tickets to The Price is Right. And I was going to school in Los Angeles, not too far from where the show filmed. And my first thought was, what if I go on the show and win some money to fund this book? You know, not my brightest moment. Yeah. Plus, I I was just going to say, that's, you know, if, if everybody thought that, then there would be a problem. But, uh, right. well, do you know what's funny? The more I reflect on it, because, you know, at the time I was just sort of functioning off instinct, but the more I reflect on it, the more I just notice it's in my nature, but also in the nature of a lot of people who I talk to. When you have, you know, an all consuming, you know, challenge or goal that you're trying to figure out, you know, how am I going to gather the money to travel the world? How am I going? You know, whatever your thing is that you've like decided to yourself is, you know, your mission that you care about. All of a sudden, everything that you see around you, you start filtering through that lens. <laughs> so, right, yeah. You know, if I didn't want to write this book, I'm sure maybe I would have saw the prices right and would have looked the other way and it wouldn't have been that interesting to me. But to me, I was sort of looking at everything in life through the filter of how can this help me achieve this goal that I have no idea how to achieve. So all of a sudden, the price is right became a tool in me trying to make this happen. But, you know, it was a dumb idea because I had finals two days. The show was filming the next morning. And I decided 
that night to pull an all-nighter to study. But I didn't study for finals. I studied how to hack the prices right. And I went on the show the next day and did this ridiculous strategy. Alex, trip to Magic Mountain, trip to Cape Canaveral for a weightless flight, zero-G flight, and a sailboat. You bid $30,000, actual retail price. $31,188, difference of 1,188, Alex, just by a couple hundred dollars. And I ended up winning the whole showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling the sailboat, and that's how I founded the book. A little, a little bit different from uh, like working for two years at Taco Bell, which I'm sure would yield a different story. <laughs> um, Very different, <laughs> but I'm sure it would have worked too. Right, but it makes a good story, and, and we'll come back to that in a second. But I'm curious to know what uh, what kind of blocking happened after you had this uh, the windfall of the prices right in hand. Oh, what's funny is you know, first of all, you know, when I hacked the prices right, it was much. When I use the word hack, I use it very liberally. It was much less you know Albert Einstein and much more Forrest Gump. But you know, I. I ended up, you know, winning the sailboat and I sold the sailboat for I think I think it was about, you know, $16,000, which for a broke college student is a million bucks. You know, it's the most money I've ever, you know, held in my life. Oh, heck yeah. And you know, I was in the dorms already, so at that point the only thing I was spending this money on was for the book and you know, I felt like a millionaire and you know I'm taking all my friends out to lunch at Chipotle you know free guacamole for everybody you know I'm really balling out (laughs) I that's really where the journey set off so it took two years to track down Bill Gates it took three years to track down Lady Gaga you know every interview was its own adventure you know you brought up Tim Ferriss for him I you know had to hide in a bathroom to get that interview for Larry King I chased him through a grocery store and when I had started this mission, you know, when I started nine years ago, there was no part of me looking for that, you know, quote unquote, one key to success. You know, we've all seen those business books or those TED Talks, and normally I just roll my eyes, but what ended up happening over that seven year journey is I started realizing that every single one of these people I was interviewing. You know, no matter where they came from, it didn't matter if it was, you know, Warren Buffett from Omaha, Nebraska, or Maya Angelou from Stamps, Arkansas, every single one of them treated life and business and success the exact same way. Hmm. And the analogy that came to me, because I was, you know, 21 at the time, is that it's sort of like getting into a nightclub. There's always three ways in. So there's the first door, the main entrance where the line curves around the block, where 99% of people wait around hoping to get in. You know, it's the main entrance, you're standing out in the cold, you know, holding your resume, hoping the bouncer lets you in. That's the first door. And then there's the second door, you know, the VIP entrance where the billionaires and celebrities go through. And for some reason, school and society have this way of making you feel like those are the only two ways in. You either wait your turn or you're born into it. But what I learned is that there's always, always the third door. 
And it's the entrance where you jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door a hundred times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way in. And it doesn't matter if that's how Gates sold his first piece of software or how Lady Gaga got her first record deal. They all took the third door. And this is an interesting detail. You know, when I was um, when I was listening to you on other podcasts, you always told the Price is Right story. And I thought, oh. <laughs> Why does he always tell the Price is Right story? Then I read your book, and and um, you're, you're a guy who becomes a mentor. Elliot says you need to learn how to tell uh, turn experiences into stories. And in a way, your third door analogy became a calling card as well. It's something that people the people you talk to seemed to respond to. Uh, but it's interesting how you have you have your Maya Angelos and your Bill Gateses, but you also have people like Elliot. Um, mm-hmm who started the, the the Summit Series, which I think is how you had a connection with me, because um, I know Greg, mm-hmm. Greg from yeah. the Summit Series. Um, and so tell me the role that the that these mentors, big and small, played in this process. It's one of these topics that I cannot, you know, as much as I try to hype it up, you can't overstate it. It is, and again, it's not just even in my life. If in all the people who I studied, and you look at Warren Buffett's career trajectory, you look at Steven Spielberg's career trajectory, there have been a few people that you can you know count on your hand that completely changed their lives. And again, it doesn't matter if you're you know the world's richest man or if you're a you know 18 year old college student. Uh, it can't be overstated. And on a personal level, for me, I. You know, I'm very fortunate in the sense that this whole journey in many sense was a – I didn't know it at the time, but it was almost like this long journey of meeting you know, my dream mentors in many ways. Um, whether it was just for an hour with Bill Gates or whether it was for years every day with someone like Elliot Bisno, who isn't as well known. What I have taken away from it though, there's this great quote that I love. There's this really great quote that I love. It says something along the lines of, you know, always respect the people who make time out of their busy schedule when you need it. Hmm. But love the people who don't even check their schedule when you need them. Hmm. And the reason I love that quote is because it you're you're grateful for both kinds of mentors. Um but I can definitely say with confidence the mentors that have changed my life. Um, you know, you read the book Elliot Bisno. There's another man named Cal Fussman, and when a mentor sort of transcends, and it sounds like you and Tim had a similar relationship where it went from, you know, first it was just a quick phone call of advice, and then it began to transcend into a friendship, a working relationship, and. Sometimes you're lucky those relationships even transcend into almost being like family. And those are the relationships that have changed my life the most. You know, the advice I got from Bill Gates was incredible and I still use it to this day. Um, But, you know, you can't, I, I just can't overstate how big it is. And, you know, Elliot Bisno and I talk about this a lot where there's a big difference, especially when we're talking to young entrepreneurs who, you know, they love to ask, you know, you know, help me get a mentor. How do I get a mentor? And the advice that Elliot gives them is 
mentors are good, but what's better is a peer group. Hmm. And no one, I, 100% of the time I see him give this advice, 100% of the time, the look on the person's face who's receiving the advice is grave disappointment. Because that's, hmm. you know, everyone wants that men, you know, look at me. I literally went on a seven-year quest to track down Bill Gates because I thought he would tell me one sentence that will transform my life forever. I poured my, I, you know, dropped out of college. I gave my entire life to this mission because I thought something out of Bill Gates' mouth or maybe Steve Wozniak, one of them would tell me something that would change my life forever. And, you know, you alluded to this in the beginning, which is the book started out as a quest for secrets. And life sort of took the steering wheel and turned it into a journey of learning about the process of how to achieve a dream. And the mentor that is part of your day-to-day that almost transcends, transcends into a peer group is really what changes your life. I noticed that in reading the book because actually I write down quotes from everything I read and I wrote down a lot of Elliot Bisno quotes, probably more than <laughs> probably more than anyone else, um, just because that guy was giving you gold and, and it's yeah. and it's funny how on on the quest to find Bill Gates, you find the Elliot Bisnos. You know, you find these yeah. people who become your peer groups. And so that seemed like such such a, a powerful part of this quest is that you had your A-list people that you found and 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 some of which were easier to interact with than others and and maybe some you didn't interact with at all i'm thinking like mark zuckerberg for example maybe bill clinton but it's (laughs) it's the uh it's the elliot biznos who sometimes say the most quotable things and actually become part of your peer group now as as we went through this process there's a point in your book when you realized that things might be a little bit different for women and it Mm. was it was such a an affecting thing for you that you actually threw in a cartoon, actually, um, an old meme cartoon about, yeah. you know, the, the, the race for a man and a woman um, might be 50 meters, but there's so many more obstacles and hurdles in the way for a woman, which is interesting, you know, because I think sometimes, you know, the word privilege is used so much now that we almost don't hear it anymore. But in a sense, I mean, even like before we were interviewing, I was talking about how I was calling you from Kansas, right? Mm-hmm. And then it's, it's different to grow up in Kansas. There's, there's a lot of different ways that you can have obstacles in the way, that it's more expensive to go and try and find yeah. a mentor in a big city if you're in a country place. It's, it's more difficult. Like a lot of the, a lot of the, um, the hacking that you did might be more difficult if you're an African-American guy who's, who mm-hmm. and African-Americans are, are viewed with on, on suspicion. And so I thought it was interesting to bring in this lesson late in the book that it may have been different had, um, had this same experiment been played out by someone who wasn't a dude, right? So yeah. keeping in mind that people who, be, who are listening to this might not be white dudes like you and me, and we're different iterations of, of white dudes, um, how universal is this idea? Are the lessons you learned in the book and what might you say to somebody who might think, yeah, it's easy for someone who lives in Los Angeles to, to, to chase after this dream, but I'm not in that position. What would you tell them? Yeah. First of all, I'm really grateful you brought this up because it's something I care a lot about to the point where when we were even you know, working on the publishing of this book, 
I spent a lot of time thinking about it and you know, the image that you brought up, I purposely and very thoughtfully told my publisher, I only want one photograph in this entire book. And it was that one. It's the technical name is called Opportunity Hurdles. And, you know, if you Google it, it's a you know, really well-known uh, political cartoon. And there was a lot of thought into making sure that, that was the only image uh, to the point where, and this is actually one of my favorite stories, I went, so the book is out in over a dozen languages now, and we did book launches around the world, and I went to Italy for the book launch. And the cover of the book is very similar to the American cover, except that in America, the cover of the book is you know black and white and blue. And in Italy, it's black and white and pink. And the back cover is entirely pink. And I thought it was cool. I thought, you know, maybe it's like an Italian thing. It's like, you know, floral and, uh, you know, I thought it was like cool. And it looked really nice. And I went and I met the publisher, you know, on the day of the book launch. And I, you know, complimented him. I was like, you know, it's a really nice cover. And he's like, you know why we did it, right? And I was like, what do you know? I don't know. And he's like, we wanted the cover to represent the most important page of this book. And he opened up to the page with that, with that political cartoon. Hmm. And that was very emotional for me because, as you might remember, I didn't find that cartoon. My younger sister, Talia, yeah. gave it to me. Yeah. And the fact, for me, the reason I became emotional is because my sister's beliefs she shared with me I put in this book, and then that publisher decided it was so important he was going to make it and highlight it, you know, to all the people in Italy. And to me, it was very emotional because it started for my sister. And you know, going back to your main question, you know, there's one way a big answer, but very simply, the answer is just yes. Um, it is drastically harder for. And again, I don't want to speak from a place of knowing because the only thing I know is my own experience. I don't want to pretend I uh, know other people's experiences. Uh, but just from friends or, again, even just my sisters, the stories I hear, it's drastically harder. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. When you were talking about the cover of your Italian translation book, I was thinking of my friend Valentina in Italy, who's been a friend for a long time, about 20 years. And as she sort of moved up through her career, she's a very capable and smart person who speaks multiple languages. She would tell me these stories of just how difficult it was and just how much condescension was involved mm. in dealing with a smart woman. And so I would tell my American friends and say, gosh, you're lucky that you're not in Italy. Look at what happens. And my, my American female friends would say like, yeah, actually that happens here too, right? Yeah. So that's a situation where I, it actually took having a friend from another country for, to give me perspective on my own country and realize yeah. that there's sort of a, a culture to, to, to maleness and femaleness, um, regardless of where in the world you are, that it's really good to be cognizant of and ask. I think that's a, that's a good one-word answer. And that can apply to many situations, not just um, male-female questions. But And, of course, part of the implication of your book is, as a mentee, to ask. Ask for advice. Ask for assistance. But also as a mentor, mm. just ask about mm. the world around you and who might need, who might benefit from your, from your um, perspective and how might their perspective yeah. inform your own. 
Yeah, one of the biggest realizations I've had this past year is you can't change your reality until you see your reality. Hmm. And again, asking is so rarely done because it's so scary what you might hear. And I commend anyone who has the courage to ask and really listen. Um, it's something I, I'm still aspiring to do more. Yeah. Well, this is this is this is essential, but kind of higher level advice that probably you weren't even cognizant of when you started on on this project. And so I'm curious to know just about writing the book itself, because there's I'm curious to know the two stages. There's the conceptualization of the book, and then there's the sitting down by yourself and and pounding the book out. Sentence by sentence. And it sounds like maybe Cal Fussman helped you with that, and I want to get to him in a second. But before it even came down to um, to writing it, there was this idea where, hey, I'm 19 years old. I'm going to write a book. And so I'm curious to know what you learned during this process. I mean, you read a, you read a ton of books. You talked to a lot of people. You learned a lot about interviewing. Were you keeping notes the whole time? Were you, did you have an Evernote or a Scrivener file going? Mm -hmm. Or did you just sort of stumble your way into the conceptualization of the book? Because as you know, it's one thing to say, I'm going to write a book, but then writing the book itself is just a whole other monster. <laughs> well, thank God I didn't know that. Thank God I didn't talk to you because I probably would have backed out if I knew that. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I've been a, a big beneficiary of uh, naivete over the years. And I, I still am. I'm probably not even aware of what I'm still naive about. But for me, it, you're exactly right. It was almost too... The reason this book took seven years to write is because it was almost two completely different projects in one. One was this you know, three to four year journey of trying to interview and learn from the world's most successful people. That in and of itself is a full-time job of many, many years. Um, to my surprise, Bill Gates doesn't just do random interviews with 18-year-olds. So it was a lot more work than I assumed. And that was just one. One part was just three to four years of, and that was not that, although there were many fun moments, you know, I found myself on the floor crying more times than I can count. Um, some of the darkest times in my life was on that path. And then there's a whole completely separate second three to four year journey of writing the book, turning the experiences and the interviews into the written word. And originally I was not planning for that second half to happen. The original idea for this book, even you know the idea I pitched to my publisher and got a publishing deal on, was for this to be a series of essentially Q and A's, hmm. where I take, you know, I walk into Bill Gates' office with an audio recorder, I interview him for an hour, I cut out my words and I sort of put in, I sort of clean up Bill's words. And funny enough, it's essentially what Tools the Titans became many many years later. Yeah, I was thinking Tribe of Mentors too. Yeah, it's essentially, essentially, and now with the podcasting world, you're seeing a lot of books like that. You know, Dave Asprey put out a book. There's a lot of books now that are sort of, and again, I got the idea from, you know, Katie Kirk had a book like that. And, you know, 
and a lot of, you know, Think and Grow Rich, you know, there's a lot of books like that where you're, you know, taking extremely wise people and sort of uh, polishing their words. And, you know, magazines do it every every month. You know, it's, it's called a magazine Q&A. And so, again, I wasn't reinventing the wheel. Um, and that was the original idea. Because that actually seemed doable. I was self-aware. I had no writing experience. You know, my only writing experience at that time was, you know, freshman year of college writing 101. And I was like, if I can just get the interviews, I'm smart enough to clean up those transcripts so they're uh, easy to read. I, I can do that. So that was the original plan. And I got the publishing deal based off of that pitch. But about a year after I got the publishing deal, I'm about, you know, 20, 21 at the time. You know, I go meet my editor in New York. You know, I'm a year into working with him. And he calls me into his office and he's like, look, Alex, I have a very important question for you. Do you want this book to inform people or do you want it to change their lives? And I was like, well, that is a very leading question. <laughs> right. like, can can like, I say both, right? <laughs> I'm like, that is a very leading question. Of course, if I had to choose one, I would choose, you know, I want it, I want it to change people's lives. And he goes, right. great. The book you are currently writing will not do that. And I was like, <laughs> like, what are you talking about? We've been working together for a year now. How come you haven't said anything? And he said, well, I have a son your age. I know you wouldn't have listened. And... <laughs> Well, he's a brilliant, brilliant man. And what he ended up explaining to me is something that, you know, you know very well. And it's that the things that change people's lives, if you look at, you know, the Odyssey, you look at Harry Potter, it's essentially the same story. It's the story of a relatable person, man or woman, who is going through a very personal crisis and something happens to them that sends them on this quest to try to solve their own problem and they stumble and they go through obstacles and as that main character grows and learns and evolves, so does the reader. And, you know, my editor is explaining this to me and again, literally, I'm 20 years old, never, this is a novel concept to me. This is a very, you know, no pun intended. It is a very uh, foreign idea. And I'm looking at him like an idiot. And I'm like, so like, who do you think the main character should be? Should it be like Bill Gates? Should it be Steven Spielberg? And he's like, no, it's, it's you. Hmm. And it's so funny in hindsight. This d- doesn't even make sense in hindsight, but this was my reality. It took me, I'm not exaggerating. It took me four to six months to finally come to terms with what he was telling me. You could, I I can name, you know, dozens of friends that I ran this idea by and they all agreed with my editor and I still was like, I don't know. And the reason why is because I was so wrapped up with my original vision of the book, which is this has nothing to do with me. This is all about the interview subjects. I'm just a, uh, I'm almost just a 
messenger of their wisdom. And I was so attached to that idea, it took months and months and months and months to finally, and it wasn't until I met a man named Cal Fussman. Um, I ended up chasing Larry King through a grocery store, interviewing Larry King, and Larry King's best friend at the time, and still to this day, is this man named Cal Fussman, who's this remarkable writer for Esquire magazine, and a best-selling author in his own right. And it wasn't until I started becoming friends with Cal Fussman that he slowly helped me see, number one, not only is that the only way to properly write this book if my goal was actually to help people. And he sort of checked me on it. He's like, do you actually want to help people and actually write a good book? And I said, yes. And he said, well, you're in for the hardest experience of your life. And I was sort of laughing at him like, ah, it can't be harder than like trying to track down Bill Gates. No, it is much harder. (laughs) It's much, narrative writing is much harder. I will take chasing down Warren Buffett any day as hard as that was. And that is essentially how the ultimate third door came to be. Well, I want to get to your relationship with Cal in a second, because you wrote in the acknowledgments that you went through like 134 revisions with Cal of certain chapters. And that is before the publisher even saw the chapter. Yeah. That's not counting copy editing, proofreading, multiple. So in total, the Bill Gates chapter probably has close to 200 edits on that one chapter just with me and Cal is about 134. Yeah. And I think aspiring writers need to take that to heart and and we'll get to that, those, that nitty gritty in a second, but often I I teach writing and oftentimes people are like, you want me to rewrite it a third time? And it's like, Oh, Oh dear. You have (laughs) no idea until you've rewritten it 16 (laughs) times. I don't even want to see your, I'll count your first draft after the 20th revision. Yeah, the uh, the analogy I use is that people think that you know writing is the party, and then revision is cleaning up after the party. When in fact, you know, the party is about uh, revision twenty five. You know, uh, that... I don't know if there's a party at any point in the process. <laughs> right. Well, it, it's it's interesting how story suffuses all of this. You were talking about how ultimately it had to be your story, not anybody else's story, but your story. But sometimes even people's stories aren't really their stories because like when you had to make the decision on whether or not to take time off from college to, to yeah. throw yourself into the project, you came up against the idea, well, well Mark Zuckerberg quit school you know, to do what he mm-hmm. did and Bill Gates quit school to do what he did. But actually, that's the idea of quitting, being a rebel and quitting school to do something bigger than school is itself a story that is not biographically – accurate for those guys it's not true there's just stories within stories and so how did how did you wrestle with that again it goes back to i just you know and i love how your questions have this beautiful theme to them because it goes back to an original question about mentors and cal fussman saved my life and i don't use that phrase lightly um the reason my life is what my life is right now is because of cal fussman And I didn't know what I didn't know. And God, there was, I'm sure there's still a lot I don't know that I don't know, but boy, when I met him, I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And I'm sure, you know, if I didn't meet him, the third door would have come out and helped some people, but I am 
extremely confident that uh, the book would not have helped as many people as it's currently helped without Cal. And man, it just, he just painstakingly, um, and again, when he and I met, it's not like he signed up for this like three year journey of mentor. No, the way mentoring works is again, similar to what you said about you and Tim in the sense of like, starts off with one, one meeting, whether it starts off with one email or one phone call for me in Cal, you know, Larry King introduced us and Cal and I were set to just talk for like 10, 15 minutes and it turned into a three-hour discussion. Hmm. And then a good mentor, or forget about even a good mentor. At that point, he was not my mentor. He's just a guy who I met, and we talked for three hours. And he told me to do something. I think what he told me to do was, um, yeah, he's sort of like, and you'll see this, you know, I'm sure you see this all the time, uh, and I do this too, when people reach out to me now, which is you sort of tell them because you don't have that much time. You're like, all right, this was a great conversation. Go read these three books and come back to me when you're done. It's shocking that 90% of people don't do it. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, it's, but it's also really beautiful because the ones who do, um, you really take a liking to it. And, you know, Cal, uh, Cal told me to do something, you know, he's like, do this over the week and, you know, email me when you're done. And I, of course I pulled an all nighter and did it that night. And, you know, we met again a couple of days later. Then he told me to do this. And then it, and I just sort of started doing everything he told me to do. And that's created a momentum. There wasn't a moment where we shook hands and said, you know, you're my mentor. But I just did everything he told me to do. Well, I saw some patterns in your book. And I'm curious to know if this was direct Cal Fussman advice or if it was sort of big picture advice that he gave you and you managed to employ or if it was just some sort of instinct for storytelling because you obviously enjoy storytelling but as i was reading oral oral storytelling is my okay. natural uh-huh. um i had to learn the hard way and this is how naive i was i was like well i'm uh, you know i can you know before i even wrote the price is right story down on paper i was you know telling it to people at you know meetings and dinners and whatnot and i thought this is how naive i was i thought Oral storytelling is like, you know, to the written word as, you know, the breaststroke is to the backstroke. You know, it's a different stroke, but it's still swimming. Huh. No, it is like <laughs> my take on it, Oral being a good oral storyteller versus a good narrative writer. Like if you want to compare, you know, to, you know Barack Obama's oration versus J.K. Rowling's narrative storytelling, it's like – swimming versus gymnastics. Hmm. Yes, they're both sports, but my God, are they different. Um, so Cal Fussman had to really teach me the completely new sport. Well, I saw something, and I'm, I'm curious to know if this was Cal's idea or if it just fell into place, because I'm, I write screenplays sometimes. I haven't, I've never moved to Hollywood and, and put this into action, but uh, screenwriting is just something that interests me. And in fact, a lot of my... Some of my podcasts are with screenwriters and some of them break down movies, but I noticed that you have a five-part book, which in a way could, could correspond with a five-act screenplay. Um, there is very much, there's a point in the book when Elliot offers you a job, Elliot Bisno offers you a job mm-hmm. that it's sort of, it's the equivalent of the first plot point of a screenplay. It's about page 100, 
six of your book that's almost 300 <laughs> the pages. Sell, the sell your soul moments. <laughs> right. Well, you, you, speaking of the soul, there's also a dark night of the soul moment where you uh-huh. come back from Omaha. I, I forget yeah. which page number it is, but you come back from sort of failing to interact at all with, with Warren Buffett and you just sit in your room and don't do anything for a few days. And that's very much a – that's a second plot point, the dark night of the soul. The midpoint of your book is when you get a book agent, like smack in the middle of your book mm-hmm. is when you get an agent. And then there's sort of this Bill Gates arc that we start mm-hmm. – we, we know that you get a Bill Gates interview because it starts with a, with sort of a teaser about the Bill Gates. But then Bill Gates's relationship hinges on getting an agent. And then suddenly smack in the middle of the book, you get an agent, but you don't have Bill Gates yet. <laughs> And so it just felt like there's there's this elegant sort of screenplay structure going on in your book where things happen at the right time. And in fact, another thing about screenwriting and, and any, watch a movie and you'll see this happen all the time. I mean, it's like you're watching a movie and this phone starts ringing and the character won't a- answer it. And it's like, well, why don't they answer the phone? And it's like, it's tension. All these things have tension. So it's, like, it's too early for him to answer the phone. Exactly. You, you want to make the, the audience nervous. There's a great uh, quote I, this man named Benjamin Zander says it. He goes, you know, Macbeth, goes, why does he just kill him in the opening? And they're like, well, because the story would be done. <laughs> right. Well, exactly. There would, be no, there would be no play if he killed him in the beginning. Yeah, and so you have entire, like you have an entire Warren Buffett chapter, which just consists of obstacles, of of, of trying and failing and, and worrying and, and sort of bringing the reader through the process. In fact, your mother as a character in your book sort of serves as a doubter, you know, as, as someone who is a tension device in your story itself. And there are several scenes where you have um, ticking talks or ticking clocks yeah. where basically yeah. you're at your, your you're good. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, well, I know you're good, but it's good to, it's cool to see you uh, deconstruct it in real life. So far, everything you're saying is a hundred percent accurate. Yeah. Okay. Keep going. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm curious to know, to know your version of this thing. Cause it, it, as a guy who studies and teaches story, these things really popped out to me because you have, you know, you're sitting waiting to meet Bill Gates as chief of staff and there's a ticking clock, you know, <laughs> But you're, yep. you're, you're 20 minutes late. You're yep. also meeting with huh. your mentor, Dan, and you want to ask him this question and you're on his boat and there's like 20 minutes left to go. There's this time when you're dropping out of college and there's like three hours before you turn in your your form where you yeah. re- withdraw from college and you're still talking <laughs> to your family. And so this is classic screenplay stuff. Did 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 Cal sit you down and say, look, read these screenplays and I want you to, to correlate a hero's journey thing? Or how did this work? Because it feels like there's some very classic structural storytelling going on in your book. I'm curious to know how that came about. First of all, I'm uh, very flattered even by your observations. Um, The big picture is, yes, Cal taught me how to write a story. Hmm. And, you know, there's this great line from Aaron Sorkin. He says, storytelling has rules. If you don't follow them, you are finger painting. Hmm. And there's something about, you know, the gravitas of Aaron Sorkin just saying something so drastic like that, which really, you know, sits well with me. (laughs) And he's right. And I'm sure you, you know, teach this to your, you know, your students at your workshops, which is there are rules. Now, you... The whole point of an artist is to bend those rules, change those rules, remix them. But if you're not aware of them, you're finger painting. You know, as great as you think you are, you're finger painting. And 
a big, you know, one of the reasons it took me, you know, three to four years to write this book is so much of the process of me learning uh, the fundamentals. And it's, again, it is way harder than anyone can possibly imagine. So that's the big picture. The answer is yes. Um, Cal Fussman was the single greatest learning, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it, you know, method of learning for me to learning how to write a good story. But, you know, I, I once watched this interview where a reporter was talking to Elon Musk, you know, at this conference, it's a fireside chat, and the reporter looks at Elon Musk and thinks, you know, he, he has a really good question. He goes, Elon, you know, you didn't get a PhD in rocket science, you know, how did you learn this? How did you learn rocket science? And Elon Musk literally laughs in this man's face. Literally just starts breaking on laughter. He's like, uh, the same way you learn anything. You read books and you talk to people. Hmm. And the simplicity and truth in that answer is, to me, uh, it's just preposterous how there are billion-dollar industries that want to convince you that that's not the truth. But it is the truth. If you can read books and talk to people who have done it before you, you can, if you're literally, if you're literate, and I know actually there's a lot of people who don't have the luxury or, you know, the privilege of uh, good reading skills. But if you're lucky enough that you do, you can learn things. And I read a lot of books on story structure. I read a lot of books on, um, you know, plot and all of that. And to me, when we made the shift from this being a interview Q&A book to a narrative book, I decided if I'm going to do this, I want to do it as best as I can. And that's why it took so long to write the book. My publisher was not happy. You know, the book was supposed to contractually take one year to write. It took four years to write and deliver. They were not happy. Um, but I think they were happy with the end result. I'm curious to know, as a teacher... And sorry if I'm interrupting you here, but as a teacher, I'm curious to know um, if Cal, as your mentor, gave you specific advice like, yeah, there's too much information in this chapter. The information is fine. <laughs> yeah. we, we need more tension. We need – because I noticed like – Yes, yes, yes. It's as if you were eavesdropping in all of our conversations. Everything you're okay. saying so far is 100% accurate. Yeah. For yeah. better or for worse. <laughs> because even the Bill Gates – like you're learning this stuff from Bill Gates, but it's very clear the way that you oh write God. that chapter uh. – you, you, it's like first you're asking uh, two complicated questions, and, and that, that chapter arcs from sort of formal interview to informal interview. And I'm, and I'm, I'm curious to know, was that, was that The Hand of Cal, or had you got your instincts down? The by hand, the that is a great book title, The Hand of Cal. Okay. If I ever write a book on Cal, that's actually a good – Larry King calls it The Fussman Factor, but I think The Hand of Cal is actually much, much better. And – Yes, you just actually mentioned something that is one of the most painful parts, one of the by far most painful parts of the entire book writing process for me. So you have to remember, I set off on this journey not to be a author. I set off on this journey because I had this belief that if I gather all of this wisdom from these leaders and they came together, you know, not to promote anything, not for press, but really just to share their best wisdom with the next generation. Young people could do so much more. 
So, you know, I devoted a lot of my life to doing just that. And then I sit down with Cal and, you know, I have one hour of audio with Bill Gates with all this information. Cal's like, yeah, 95% of that you can't use. I was like, what? He's like, no, 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 no. No one will continue reading if you just dump it all out onto the page. And I was like, what? And again, you, I'm sure you see this a lot with, I would imagine with your, your students or, you know, your workshop attendees, which is they value so much everything they gathered, but you have to make a choice. And I actually, I have a, one of my best friends has a book coming out in the spring and I was helping him edit his book. And I told him, I was like, look, this is the hardest point of a writer where you have to decide what the goal of this book is. Is it for you to revel and personally enjoy your art? Or is the point of this to help the person who's consuming the art? And I actually don't think it's right or wrong. I think there's some times where you create art for the sake of the art because it's the way you want it and it feels good for you. But you have to be honest with yourself what the point of this project is, whatever you're working on, whether it's a painting, a book, a screenplay, a podcast. And for me, I had to, and it was painful because I was actually having to decide, okay, the point of this is not for me to show off everything I learned from Bill Gates and, you know, put no, the point of this is to actually help the reader. And the biggest thing I learned from Cal, and I learned a lot of things, is that you have to earn the reader turning the page. Every page has to earn it. And that is not a concept that is well uh, embraced in the business book <laughs> world. Yeah. Uh, look, most business books, you know, have a great thesis, which is why they got their publishing deal. It's in the first couple chapters, and then the rest is just uh, examples, uh, which is great. I love those books. I read them a lot. Um, but, you know, when you're reading Harry Potter, my God, does J.K. Rowling earn your page turn? And... I approached the third door with that same intention. And the Bill Gates chapter was the hardest chapter because, Rolf, I, you know, I killed myself to get that interview. I wanted to, you know, pretty much put word for it everything that happened. But if you want them to continue reading. And there's another question of you have a choice. Do you want them to absorb some of the information or do you want to give them all of it and them not absorb any of it? Hmm. And what's amazing about the Bill Gates interview is I can see now in hindsight that Cal was right. If I would have just put everything Bill Gates said in that chapter, even though that was my original vision of why I went off on this quest, people would not be underlining and highlighting quotes in that chapter. They would be lost in the maze of the conversation. Whereas in those 134 edits that Cal and I did just on that Bill Gates chapter, wow. we had to ask ourselves, and that was the hardest chapter by far. It took two months. 134 edits took two months. Wow. Two months is by far the longest that I focused on just one chapter. 
you have to understand it's not long. It's like what? It's like I don't know, like fifteen pages, twenty pages, because um, it's like a part one and a part two. Um, but we had to ask ourselves, what are the things that are essential for the reader to learn that Bill Gates has to teach them? So to me, it was you know the sales, his you know sales secrets, his negotiating secrets, and that story, if you remember, of how he sold his first piece of software. Mm-hmm. To me, I was like, okay, if and someone gave me this great writing advice, the ship is sinking. You can only take five things onto the raft. What do you take? Okay, I'm going to take this plot point, that plot point, that lesson, that lesson, lesson. Uh, five, great. Take that onto the raft and make your story just on those five things. Because um, I can find myself very attached to lessons or story elements. And that was the hard part of the Bill Gates thing, trying to figure out what was the most important thing for the readers to walk away from and then writing it in a way that's entertaining enough that they'll continue reading it and the lessons will sink in. Um, yeah, there's there's uh, there's a couple things going on. I guess I guess you had to make the decision of of this one hour transcript with Bill Gates. What am I going to include? And then there's this advice that Kurt Vonnegut gave. Have you read any Kurt Vonnegut? Of course, yeah. He says that um, you know make the reader worry about something, even if it's just <laughs> you know a, a character who wants a glass oh, of God. wine. People are very worried and anxiety when they read the third door. <laughs> Right, because because you make it very clear like, where exactly you're screwing up in your interview with with Bill Gates, and it, and it feels like that was the other strategy that you employed. You had to you one you had to decide how to how to boil down which information you're going to share, and two you had to figure out how you're going to make the reader worry about you. Right, and that was hard. And you know that's where Cal Cal's magic came in. The trick with the Bill Gates chapter. So, okay, so the Warren Buffett chapters were easier to write. They weren't easy, but they were easier to write because there was external conflict. I want to interview you. You don't want to inter- You don't want to be interviewed by me. Great. An external conflict um, that drives you know that drives the narrative. Hmm. The Bill Gates chapter. There was no external conflict. I, I had two problems. Number one is. And by the way, as much as I like tried to map out the book, there's this great quote that says, you know, writing a book is like driving in the dark of night. You know, you have your headlights, you can barely see in front of you, but that's about all you need to get to the end. Hmm. And I, I, I don't know if you resonate with that, but I definitely, that's how it felt like writing the third door. I, I could see just far enough that I could keep going, but I had no idea where I was going. And, you know, we built this book to reflect the reality of what I went through, which is Bill Gates was my holy grail mountaintop dream interview. Um, so if there's a lot of tension going into it, you better deliver. Yeah. And so that was one, um, the stakes of the writing of the Bill Gates chapter was higher than any other stakes. You know, this, you know, the Jessica Alba interview, no one saw it coming. So, you deliver something good and it's a home run. But the Bill Gates one, the reader is uh, expecting a lot. Uh, in, in part because we know that it's going to happen. And then again, the, the, you, we know that you have to get an agent before you can interview him. That the, Basically, the structure of the book keeps reminding you as a reader that Bill Gates is, it, it counts. You know, yeah. For all of the famous people in this book, the, 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 the Bill Gates chapter is special. And it sounds like it's a 134 rewrite special. 
It's pull my hair out of my head special. <laughs> um, so yeah, that those. So yeah, going back to Cal's magic. The first, I think, like you know, thirty rewrites had no tension in it because there was no external issue. And about, I would say, maybe I like edit fifty. Cal finally had the epiphany, and I give him the credit on this one. This is the thing about my relationship with Cal. He sort of had a rule. He said, look, I'm not going to write a single word. But if you do the work and you do what I tell you, I'll read what you wrote and help guide you on how to do it better next time. So it was very much a Mr. Miyagi wax on, wax off relationship, Hmm. Um, which was, you know, pulling my hair out because I knew Cal knew exactly what to do. And if he was, you know, co-writing this book, this book would have been done in a year. Um, he, he very much wanted me to you know, go through the motions myself. And, but he did every now and then have these epiphanies that he would share with me. And he said, look, I think the key to the Bill Gates chapter has to be you fucking up. I think that's what this, I think that's the tension of the chapter. You are a shitty interviewer. And I was like, well, Cal, I wouldn't take it that far. Like, no, no, you fucked up a master interviewer would not have done what you did in that interview and that's the tension and i was like uh you know again another reason this book took so long is because cal would tell me that the key to the book was me showing uh all of my every single flaw on display and for Mm -hmm. a kid who grew up in a shame-based you know jewish persian culture uh that took a lot out of me emotionally uh, but he's right. Yeah, it feels like uh, we could we could set up a business where Cal like charges five hundred dollars an hour to be a mentor, and he could be the sponsor for this episode because <laughs> um, you're making a great case for how he really was a terrific mentor, and not only by giving you good advice, but by being patient enough to say no, rewrite it the sixty seventh time, no, rewrite it the seventy eighth time. Yeah. Um, again, I. I didn't use these words lightly in, in the acknowledgments. I wrote, Cal is proof to me that God exists. Um, hmm. This is definitely one of the biggest, if not the biggest, miracles of my life. Well, I want to touch on the acknowledgement because you have a really unique acknowledgement. It's, it's, it's the most narrative acknowledgement section I've ever read, and I want to get to that in a second. But first, you mentioned Aaron Sorkin talking about there's a difference between storytelling and finger painting. Um, and that sometimes it is good. I mean, there, there are rules, but sometimes it's good to break the rules. And, and you talk about that in the, in the context of Lady Gaga as someone who broke the rules in such a way that people didn't really understand her new album. And you, in, in, a, in a strange detail, you sent her a, a YouTube video through a friend mm-hmm. of a Steve Jobs video. Mm-hmm. What was Steve Jobs' advice in that video? And, and how, how did that resonate with her? Because it, when I think of Lady Gaga, I think of this brilliant and outrageous performer who maybe is in a different silo than built than um than steve jobs and so i'm curious to know what exactly he said in that video that connected with her it's by far one of the best speeches i've ever seen in my life and i recommend anyone who's interested in business or art uh just go on youtube and type in you know steve jobs think different speech and It's the speech he gave to the Apple employees right before he showed them the Think Different commercial. 
And it's very short. I think it's like seven minutes long. And he ends up talking about how truly great art, whether it's creating a computer or, again, making a song, truly great art needs to stand for something. And if you don't know what you stand for, how will anyone else know? The theme of the campaign is, is think different. It's the people honoring the people who think different and who move this world forward. And it's, it is what we are about. It touches the soul of this company. And I remember watching that video during that week where I was with Lady Gaga realizing this is what I've been, what I want to tell her and no one can say it better than Steve Jobs. Yeah. And showing her that video turned the entire you know, crisis that she was dealing with around. And it just is a testament to the fact that what Steve Jobs was saying was right. And I think it's so hard, especially, you know, in 2019, there's so much noise in the world. It sometimes can be scary to pull back everything and just focus on the one thing you stand for. And that feels like sort of a sort of a take home from the book itself that for all of for the, all the ways it could have been just a, an encyclopedia of wisdom. It really came about knowing, find out what you want, find out what you stand for and spend the time mm-hmm. um, learning and, and, and especially from your failure, which is, which is a great lesson from from Quincy Jones. Yeah. Even the third door analogy. When I set out to write this book, like I mentioned before, I wasn't looking for that, you know, one thing. Uh, but what, what ends up happening is when you spend enough time on, on a certain subject area, you begin to see certain things emerge. And I actually was very hesitant. Once I had the third door analogy, it came to me about like 70% into the process. Uh, I was a bit hesitant about it. I wasn't sure if that would be the title of the book. Just because I resonated with it didn't mean it was right. Um, and my publisher was extremely against it, like adamantly against it. They're like, that's a sci-fi novel huh. title. That's not a business book. Yeah. They wanted to call it, uh, it's like embarrassing to say in hindsight, but they wanted to call the book um, The New Rules to Success. Okay. <laughs> it would have been a much different book. Um, I'm completely unsurprised that that was their idea. I mean, it's it's not a bad title, but it's a different aura, right? It's a different feel to to getting into this story. Different aura, definitely. And I actually, because I still had a lot of interviews lined up left on the journey, I was only about 70% done, I started sort of casually bringing up the third door analogy in my future interviews. You know, with Jane Goodall, I asked her about the third door analogy. And I didn't say I'm thinking about this being the title. I just said, you know, I have this theory that I've been playing with. Like, can I get your thoughts on it? And I sort of just framed it as one of my many interview questions. And I would say the third door analogy, and you know, I remember I think it might have been Jane Goodall, the first person I shared it with. And she's like, "That's exactly how I live my life." And then next, I did an interview with Pitbull. You know, two people who could not, on the surface, be more different: Jane Goodall and Pitbull. And I shared the third door analogy with him. He's like, "Dude, that is exactly how I got to where I am." And then I'm sitting out with Jessica Alba. You know, I'm sort of crossing the whole spectrum here. I'm sitting out with Jessica Alba, and she says, "That's exactly." what we look for when we're hiring people for the honest company. And then I think the clincher for me personally was sitting down with Quincy Jones and he just looked at me and he's like, 
you got it, man. And he, he actually used a jazz metaphor. He said, he said that analogy is in the pocket, which is, you know, in jazz when, I didn't know this at the time, but I learned it's in jazz when a beat is just right on the money. You know, can't be any faster, any slower. It's just right there in the pocket. Um, so that definitely gave me the courage, um, even though my publisher was not excited about the title, um, it did give me the courage to, to call it the third door. Yeah, it was interesting. I really enjoyed the Quincy Jones section. It made me sort of wonder, like, how can I be that cool when I'm 81, right? I, dude, I'm in the same <laughs> boat as you, man. Because he's, he's not just Quincy Jones, you know, the music producer and, and, the, and the singular genius. He's a guy who's traveled the world and, and like, wrote out Arabic script for you. I mean, I just <laughs> – I had no idea until I read that book how cool Quincy Jones is. Jones is he's, that's a great takeaway. He is very fucking cool. Yeah. Uh, well, a couple more things. One is that, like I said, there is a narrative. You, your acknowledgement section was narrative. And I think there's an extent to which that you, instead of just listing names in the end, you actually told a few stories, one of, it, one of which was about Cal. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, Cal is the guy uh, who, who taught you the question, what's the best lesson your dad ever taught you? And mm-hmm. interestingly enough, your dad passed away as you were finishing the book. And in a way, for all of the ambition that underscores the center part of the book, the acknowledgement is really about the lifelong love that underscores all of our ventures. Uh. You know, that, that without, that you can, you can be objective about ambition, but until you acknowledge the love of someone like your father, um, uh. It's just a different story entirely. Um, and so was that – where did you get the idea to be narrative in your acknowledgement section? And then how important was it to, tell, to, to, to nod to your father as a, as a contributor to this whole process? Hmm. First of all, I appreciate you bringing that up. Um, yeah, it's definitely something I still you know, struggle with. You know, just dealing with the grief. Um, so if we're just going to look at the acknowledgements, you know, as, on their own. Um, number one, it was the, you know, by far emotionally hardest part to write. Um, that was the one part where Cal said, you're on your own. <laughs> huh. Huh. He, I think a part of him was tired of, you know, he had spent three years helping me. And on the other end, it was almost like the final, you know, Mr. Miyagi, you know, you've learned, you've learned what you needed to know. You can do this on your own. And he still, you know, looked over it and gave some advice. But um, for the most part, I actually went to Australia for a month and sort of spent, you know, spent a few weeks writing the acknowledgments by myself because um, it was very hard. Um, you know, before I even knew what I was going to write in the acknowledgments, I, I had an intention, you know, before I even thought I would include my dad in it, I, I wasn't planning on doing any of that. What I did know is, and this just, I, I, I don't know, shows some of my, I don't know, psychosis or something like that, because I, I was like, I want the acknowledgments and again, I, I hate to say these things out loud, but yes, these are the things that go in my head. I'm like, I want to write the greatest acknowledgement section in the history of literature. <laughs> you know, like, I, and, and again, the fact that it's 
and I actually do believe this. You know, you shoot for the what's the phrase? You know, shoot for the moon, you land on the clouds. That's like sort of my life, in the <laughs> sense of like. People are like, oh, wow, Alex, congratulations. You must be so happy about how things turned out. I'm like, you don't know what I was aiming for. This is like, this is third place. Your next book could be The Clouds Are a Great Place to Be. Stories. That, wow. Wow. <laughs> that actually is good. Because um, that actually is exactly the place in life I am now. Um, wow. That actually resonated in a way I couldn't have expected. The Clouds Are a Great Place to Be. Yeah, I mean, when you, I mean, it's, it's sort of an analogy, but in a way, why, why not enjoy the clouds if that's where you land? You know, that is. Um, I think that's really beautiful. I'm gonna write that down. That's really nice. Awesome, man. I have like two book titles just from this podcast. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the the hand of Cal <laughs> and the cloud. The clouds are a great place to be. The hand of that sound, hand of Cal sounds like a martial arts movie. If the third door it, is a science it, fiction it, it, movie, it is a martial arts movie. <laughs> wow, um, I have this, this is like a side note. I, I have this like uh, quirky thing that I like to do, which is like at dinner parties with my friends, like uh, go around the table and come up with really funny memoir titles for all my friends. Mm-hmm. It's like, um, it's just like. I, I, I have like funny examples of like, uh, I, I don't know what's a recent one that I thought was really funny. Oh, uh, drowning in shallow water, the blah, blah, blah story. Yeah. <laughs> just like, and just like roasting friends through like funny memoir titles. Um, anyways, back to, uh, first of all, this has been an extremely enjoyable conversation. I feel like we can do this for like five hours. This is really fun. Yeah, totally. So going back to the acknowledgments, you know, before I even knew what would be in the acknowledgments, that was my intention. I told Cal, I was like, I want to write the greatest acknowledgment section, you know, on earth. And he laughed at me. He's like, okay, you know, well, what are your plans? I'm like, well, most acknowledgment sections are extremely boring and extremely poorly written. And like, I have a lot of respect for movies where the credits are just extremely enjoyable you know that director cares about her or his art and nothing makes me more sad when you see this amazing movie it ends and then all of a sudden like it's just like text on the black on a black background with like a random soundtrack song you're like oh come on or actually a pet peeve of mine is bloopers hmm. um you don't like blooper the blooper reel I like bloopers like on YouTube. I actually think they're – if it wasn't good enough to be in the movie, it's sort of like going to a restaurant. This is what bloopers are to me. And I probably sound like a crazy person now, but I think artistically artist, – bloopers sometimes are funny. Like I'll laugh at bloopers. But artistically, it's like going to a you know a five-star restaurant, you know, three Michelin star or whatever. And you just had the greatest dinner of your life that that chef has been preparing for eight years because that's how long a movie normally takes. You just had the best thing. You just had the dessert. You paid the bill. You're done. And then they bring out the scraps from the kitchen and tell you to eat it on your way out. <laughs> that's, that's what a blooper reel is. It's the things that couldn't make it into the movie. And they're like, well, this should be the final taste in your mouth. It just – anyways. Um, 
That's that's my own. And again, I actually think uh, acknowledges the book of the same way. Or sometimes you'll read a beautiful book. I'm sure you've been there. You read a beautiful book, and not everyone reads the acknowledgments. Some people do. And for those people, those are normally the very the people who love the, the book the most. Um, sometimes I'll read a book that I love, like um, Laura Hillenbrand. You know, talk about a remarkable writer. Laura Hillenbrand's Unbroken. Mm-hmm. I remember finishing the book and it being so good that I read the acknowledgments almost as if I was looking for a like a starving child, a morsel of food of just beautiful writing. And sure enough, in their acknowledgments, there were some sentences that were just gorgeous. Hmm. Now, it wasn't a narrative acknowledgments, but it was just like there were some gorgeous moments in there. Um, so I have experienced a few times. Even I remember reading the four work weeks acknowledgments. There were sometimes where Tim Ferriss would say something like, he would describe someone in a really beautiful way, even though it wasn't narrative, and it was enjoyable. And I was like, wow, what if I try to make the acknowledgments as enjoyable as any other chapter in the book? And that was sort of my intention. And then the reality came in of, okay, what am I going to write about? And I was like, okay, first let me just make a list of who I want to thank. So I make the list, and you sort of have to put it in an order of the order of the people you want to think and of course I wanted to start with my parents and then that's when reality set in of my dad passed away um, you know six months before it came time to to write the acknowledgments so uh, it didn't feel right just saying you know thank you dad yeah and so I thought about it, you know, what is one one moment, one lesson I want to thank him for in particular? And it was actually something that I learned from him in his final week uh, of his life. And <clears throat> that's sort of how the acknowledgement section came to be, which is first I sort of had like, um, you know, when you write a book, you have an outline of the lessons you want to or in the stores you want to do it, then you sort of, sort of you have an outline. For acknowledgments, the outline is the people. So first it was my dad, then it was my mom, then my sisters, um, my grandma, uh, Cal Fussman, and then it sort of went down the mentors along the way, <clears throat> and my best friends. Um, and I asked myself, you know, what's a story that shows my gratitude uh, and shows my appreciation instead of just saying. Um, thank you, John, thank you, Bob, thank you, Steve, you know, thank you, Jane, thank you, Emily, you know, instead of just saying thank you to a list of people. Um, but it was by far the most emotionally, even just talking about it right now, like my lower back is hurting, even just talking about it, because it's still, uh, still raw. Yeah, that. I bet. You know, there's the idea that there is a process of becoming, but I'm quite a bit older than you. I'm, I'm 48, and uh, I really identified with a lot of the things you were talking about in the book. And and then then again, you know, I read about Quincy Jones, and it's like, wow, how can I be that cool when I'm 81? So, what advice would you give to yourself when yourself mm. is 48 mm. or six, or 81? Wow. Um, from the perspective where you are now. Wow. 
That's a cool question because you always get the question, what would you tell your you know, 20-year-old self or your 18-year-old self? Mm. Um, it's cool to, to think forward. The first thing that's coming to my mind right now, almost like in neon letters, is uh, a quote from Maya Angelou that she told me in what was you know, the final moments of our interview. And she said, she said, I'm 81 and I'm just getting started. Don't narrow your life down. And that really, really resonates. And there's something, uh, it's weird, you know, I, I don't know if you can relate to this, but I grew up with, you know, a lot of wonderful family members uh, who I love. But at the same time, I just had this notion that, you know, you turn 30, not even 40, you turn 30 and your life sort of just uh, clicks into gear and, that's it until the end. You know, from, you know, age five to 30, you get to grow and learn and explore and find yourself. Then at 30, you start clicking a gear, get married, have kids, and you cruise on to the 80s until you're like 80, you know? Yeah. Um, that's just the way, you know, Persian culture sort of is, which is, you know, in your 20s, you find, you know, you find your profession, you find your spouse, and then click you just you know hit cruise control and that's how you go um i guess that's always made me like really uh i never even thought that there was another option i know that sounds so weird but a, a part of actually what that's actually giving me some insight a part of what fueled my almost like desperation to go on this quest for the third door was i better find out what i really want to do so when that you know moment clicks in where I have to do that for the rest of my life. Huh. Uh, I really like it. Right. Yeah. Um, that's why I was like so terrified of doing something I don't want to do and being trapped there for my entire life. Um, that was very much part of the, uh, motivation. I was terrified of being trapped for my whole life in something I don't like. Um, so this quest for answers was very much personal. Um, and if I look at Quincy Jones, he is, he's in his 80s. And I would say last year was one of the biggest years of his career. He had a Netflix documentary come out. He did the, you know, he's just, uh, he's just going. And I think what's beautiful is to keep striving and growing and changing and being in the mix. The process, and again, you, you talked about this in the beginning, which is like, you look at Jerry Seinfeld. I think he's... I think he's one of the greatest artists alive in the sense of, to me, and that's a subjective statement. I'm not saying objectively. I'm saying it subjectively. To me, I love a craftsperson, like a craftsman, you know, someone who's just obsessed with their art. You know, whether it's you've seen that documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, or if you hear Jerry Seinfeld talk about how he crafts a joke, he just loves it. And Jerry Seinfeld had the biggest TV show on earth. And he went back to the comedy clubs hmm. the next year. And um, to me, it's to continually find, uh, and I think it's a continuing journey. And I hope I continue finding and growing. And there's a great quote that I heard. Uh, I was at a talk once with Shimon Perez, the former president of Israel. And he said, if your dreams outnumber your accomplishments, you are still young. 
This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to Alex Benayan's book, The Third Door, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts.